Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. My guest today is Lindsay Chervinsky. She's a PhD in American history. She's a White House historian of the White House Historical Association. And we are, in fact, sitting in her office. This is very thrilling. We're in Decatur House, where one of my childhood heroes, Stephen Decatur, lived for a very brief time before going and getting himself shot by the worst U.S. naval captain, potentially in American history, arguably. The best shot by the worst. Um, Lindsay, thanks for being on Historically Thinking. Thanks so much for having me. So you're writing a book about the first cabinet. Um, when's it come out, and what is the first cabinet? Yes, I'm writing uh, the first book that has really ever been written about the cabinet, which is amazing it's, given the public nature of the institution. The foyer. Let's, let's repeat that. <laughs> it's, I know, it's crazy. It's right? like people think there are no new topics in like yes. American history. This is the first book ever written about the cabinet as a cabinet? Yes. About yeah, any, was, in, the, in the 200 and how many years of American, the existence of the cabinet? Many. Yeah. Um, so there was one book that came out in 1912 called The President's Cabinet, it looked at the legislative origins of each department huh. um, and sort of had one chapter in the beginning about Washington's cabinet practices. Mm -hmm. But no one has ever said, hey, you know, the cabinet isn't in the Constitution. No legislation created it. Where did it come from? And so that was really my goal with the book was to say, where did it come from? How did it emerge? What sort of practices were developed? What sort of precedents did Washington leave for his successors? And... I look a little bit at how those continued after him. Mm -hmm. uh, the book is called The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. Mm -hmm. It will be out in March of 2020 with Harvard University Press. Okay. And a key part of this is that the cabinet is briefly mentioned in the Constitution. Well, so the word cabinet is not. Uh, not. It's not. So the secretaries, the department secretaries, are briefly mentioned, mm -hmm. and they say that the president may request advice about the issues pertaining to their department. But it wasn't until the summer of 1789 that the departments were actually created by legislation. But there was no proviso in that legislation that articulated how they should meet, if they should meet, when they should meet, if there should be any sort of oversight. Mm -hmm. um, and, and these issues were actually something that really concerned the delegates. And the delegates to the Constitutional Convention actually rejected a proposal for the type of cabinet that we see now um, and we see in Washington's administration. And mm -hmm. so it was very much not intended to be in the Constitution, but instead was Washington's creation because he felt that he needed that support and that advice in times of diplomatic crisis or when there were constitutional questions, he didn't, he couldn't rely on the very slow method of parchment and quill. He needed face-to-face -face interaction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so we're not going to talk about, well, we will talk about this in passing, 
Um, but hopefully, um, if this is not too unpleasant, we'll talk about it again when your book comes out. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> well, right now, I was really curious because we had made contact on via the web, and I was curious. You're right at a really interesting point in your research, and I thought we could talk to you about how the sausage gets made. You know, the Bismarck quote, which he didn't actually say, that no one can respect either laws or sausage <laughs> if they see either one being made. And maybe sometimes books are like that too. Yes. It's also a chance to see someone who's still in the editing phase of the yes. project. Yes. And when this stuff is fresh, to see how you set up questions and how you answer them with a thesis and all the rest of that stuff. So I want to march through sort of some of the, the historical thinking sort of archetypes or sort of the cognitive moves of historical thinking. You probably won't get to them all. But you've already alluded to one question. So could you repeat, what was the question that you came to this with? You were a graduate student? I was a graduate student, so it was actually my first semester of graduate school. You're very and lucky. That you, the question <laughs> came to you first semester. Well, I, I had a, an amazing advisor. My advisor is at the University of Virginia. His name is Alan Taylor. Mm -hmm. And he's one of the best trainers of graduate students and one of the preeminent early Americanists. And, you know, I think a month into my program, he said, all right, what are you working on? And um, I said, well, anyway, I think I'm really interested in sort of high politics and the first administration. And I think I want to do something about that, maybe one of the relationships within the administration, within the cabinet. And he said, okay, well, why don't you go read on the cabinet and come back to me? And, I and he didn't try to stop you and say that no one should do that kind of political history anymore. No, Alan is great in that he doesn't force you to ever do a subject you don't want to do, which uh -huh. is... Um, as we, you know, we were talking earlier, and I said that you, we as historians, you have to sit with a subject for a really long time to do yeah. a dissertation on it and write a book on it. And so if you don't like it, don't write it right. because it will be miserable. <laughs> um, and so as long as I could come up with a new question, he was, all, he was very supportive. So I said, okay. And so I went and I looked for books on the cabinet, and I came back a couple weeks later, and I said, you know, Alan, I said, I... Actually, I think I called him Dr. Taylor at that time, so I was afraid. <laughs> um, I said, Dr. Taylor, I, I really can't find anything. Can you advise me on where to look? And he's like, okay, well, why don't you go look in these places? And I went and I looked, and I came back, and I said, you know, I still, I really can't find anything on the cabinet. I'm, I'm not, you know, trying to be difficult. I'm not trying to avoid <laughs> this assignment. I just can't find it. Um, and he looked, and he couldn't find anything. And I said, well, I think... I think that maybe then is what I'm going to try and look into. Yeah. Um, so so I, I mean, just you had a really... I got really lucky. Well, I mean, but it's an example of how many things are lying in plain sight. Yes. Um, which are my favorite topics. Oh, they're the best. Yeah. Um, but they're hard to see because everyone yeah, sees them, quote of unquote. Course, yeah. Of course. And, and, and the figures, of course, are so well known to us. So, <clears throat> right. I mean, now Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, but the main place that they interacted is in this sort of burgeoning institution. And so then I set about sort of trying to read more about the presidency and the administration and their relationships and getting at the cabinet that way. And so then it kind of emerged from there in a very organic way to discover, okay, well then where did it come about? So, so that was your question then that your was, so did how did this cabinet come about? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where did it come from? So at what point, in all of this, this is your first semester, first semester of graduate school. I'm so, that's so, everyone, anyone who's got a PhD is very envious of you. <laughs> um, because these things can't be mm -hmm. rushed. I mean, no, or they, they or they, people try and it's mm -hmm. always miserable. Um, but at what point did you think that you had an answer to your question 
which is essentially our thesis. When did you start to develop an answer to your question? I didn't have a solid answer until the end of my second year. So that's a year and a half. It just took me a year and a half. I had I had some guesses. Uh -huh. um, so my my working hypothesis was that uh, Washington's military experience, his Council of War experience, mm -hmm. um, the councils in the states, mm -hmm. and then the British cabinet right. were sort of the three factors. And um, I was really lucky that I did my at UC Davis, which is where I, I did my degree they have you do a secondary field. And my secondary field was in early modern Europe with an emphasis on Great Britain, and I did an a, a individual study on the British cabinet, and that was really informative in helping me sort of see what similarities there were between the institutions, but really about how the emergence of the British cabinet shaped American thinking about political institutions. Now, a bit of a diversion probably what we should be talking about this a year from now. Um, the British cabinet, though, I mean, colonial councils, correct me if I'm wrong, are often seen as as, as the instruments of arbitrary tyranny. Are, are they not? I they mean, are. They are. Um, all of the states go through a major reform process at the start of the Revolutionary War in which the they all pass new constitutions. And so the councils become very much sort of the opposite of that in reaction to that concept of tyranny. Mm -hmm. The councils become basically instruments through which the legislature can control the governor mm -hmm. or limit executive power. And so what I was discovering as I was starting to do this research is I had these three things, the British cabinet, the state councils, and the councils of war during the revolution. And it was the state councils and the British cabinet almost serve as anti-origins in that once Washington was in office, he really didn't want to make the same mistakes that he had perceived in mm -hmm. those two institutions. And his secretaries agreed mm -hmm. because both Edmund Randolph, who was the attorney, first attorney general, and Thomas Jefferson, who was the first secretary of state, had been the governor of Virginia. Right. And they had been very frustrated with mm -hmm. their council experience. Yes. And so... What I, what's really interesting is I had started with this hypothesis of these three and very quickly realized that two definitely served a big factor, but sort of as an anti-factor. Oh, so that's your, this, is how your, this is your question, your hypothesis is actually being refined. Mm -hmm. Not in a way of, well, this is the thing. We do have hypotheses in history. Sure. We're refining them in a less, perhaps... Uh, Scientific way. Less scientific way, but nonetheless, we still are refining them. We, sure. Yeah. And it's really important to, as you go about doing your research, when you uncover things, it might change what you're expecting to say. It might yeah. change your argument. And it certainly did for me um, in some ways. Um, what I discovered really was that there were huge parallels between the councils of war and Washington's first cabinet. And... Um, way more than I anticipated. And so that really became the big factor for me going forward, but I wouldn't have known that at the start until I dug into the research. Yeah, so let's talk about that, because I'm trying to restrain myself from <laughs> trying to, to see. I I was, I've always been unclear of what he used councils of war for, but <laughs> let's, let's, let me stop myself for that and instead say... It's so, a preview. Yeah, well, it's a preview. It's a teaser. It's a, uh, no, no spoilers yet. Um, what is um, this, what sources were you reading um, at the beginning? And because you were trying to find something in secondary sources, sure. And before you couldn't, 
So you went into primary sources a little bit earlier than some of us. I did. I did read a lot of secondary sources because there's so much material on the participants. Sure. There are, you know, how many books on Washington. Yeah. Um, so I might... 950, <laughs> but 925 are the same book. That's true. Um, and so I mined them for any reference to the academy. But then you're right, I dug into primary sources pretty early. Yeah. Um, which was good because I had the... What is both a wonderful luxury and also a challenge of the participants in the first cabinet wrote so many letters and kept so many letters that a lot of PhD students are working with like 10 letters. That's yes. all they have. I have like 10,000. Try doing, try doing, should say, Charlemagne's court as an as executive, <laughs> exactly. as an instrument of executive power. Yeah, you are so limited by resources. So I have the exact opposite problem, which uh, is I have so many materials. I have like 10,000 letters. So that's a, that becomes a problem of sourcing in and of itself, the amount of material that you have. Yeah, you have to wade through a lot, and a lot of it is not going to be relevant. And so um, I'm very fortunate that the papers projects of mm. Washington and Jefferson and Madison and Hamilton... Blessings be upon them. Oh, they're so invaluable, and they make historians' jobs so much easier. I, I don't know if how I've written my first... I mean, the, the fact that I wasn't in an academic institution, but Founders Online was available. Oh, it's incredible. And it, it, yeah. I, it would have taken me twice as long. Yeah. And at the, least. And I find the footnotes and some of the editorial, the connections to, like, the little mini biographies in the footnotes yes. are so helpful. They are. I really... I mean, I, I try and say this as frequently as I can, especially in the Washington papers, because, of course, editorial best practices have evolved. And so yes. some of the Hamilton papers, editors' comments are a little bit less um, robust. Yes. The Washington papers' editorial comments are the biggest lifesaver they because they link to other things. Oh, yes. And they explain things. And, oh my gosh, they make history. Wonder, uh, and, and altogether, I mean, that the, these, founder pa these Founders' Papers projects, to my mind... I like the Manhattan Project of American History in some ways. They really are, so... Yeah, they're essential, and um, for anyone who doesn't know, they're, they're publicly funded, so yeah. it's such an important part of maintaining and preserving and protecting history, and they open up things about some of these figures, like Washington Jefferson, that we, you know, we think we know everything about them, and we don't until we actually read their letters. And we see, for example, you know, you, you read a letter from Washington to... Hamilton, mm -hmm. but then you're able to see what are the other letters he was writing that day, yeah. what his mood is, what he's thinking about. You, you begin, because of that, they're all there. Mm -hmm. You begin to be able to piece that together mm -hmm. in a really interesting way. Well, and you can also see the depth of who they were as people. So one of the amazing things about these letters projects is, you know, it's a chronic problem for historians that a lot of enslaved people didn't leave any written records. Right. But Washington has a lot of records about them. Mm -hmm. Now maybe we have to read them against the grain because they're not coming from that perspective, but it's better than what we would have without yeah, those papers. Absolutely. And so it's an amazing asset to see every aspect of sort of early Atlantic life mm -hmm. if we care to look. Yeah. Um, there's a other problem with sourcing. So you have the embarrassment of riches problem, which is a good problem to have. Mm -hmm. But you've got a other problem is that Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson certainly soon began to hate each other with the hatred that only two brilliant men in the same room can have. Yes. Um, and they were both assiduous in salting the historical record <laughs> to make yes. certain that posterity <laughs> would realize that they were right and the other yes. guy was a real, well, Hamilton's case, literally a bastard. Yes. Um, so 
how do you deal? That's a that's like a. It, it, in some ways, it's so exaggerated that it's easy mm-hmm. to read between the lines, but it's still hard. I think. I mean, read, yeah. reading Jefferson's Annas, oh, you know, it's... and uh, his careful <laughs> attempt to show how George Washington was on my side all along. Uh, um, it, yeah. That's a really that's like one of the fundamental problems of sourcing in American history. It really is. Um, I think the best way to do it, you know, as historians, we have certain standards we set for ourselves about what we can say with what proof, and if you know, we have to footnote it. But there's another side to, I think, crafting history that we don't often discuss, which is that, especially when you're working with a group of people that's this small. So I'm really working with five men most of the time. Mm-hmm. And what's, who are those five sure. men? Sure. So George Washington's the first president. Obviously. Alexander Hamilton is the first secretary yeah. of treasury. Thomas Jefferson is the first secretary of state. Henry Knox is the first secretary of war. And Edmund Randolph is the first attorney general. Okay. And then I get into the B team later. But mm-hmm. to start with, to really look at the beginnings, I'm looking at five guys. And so you have to get to know them really well. Mm-hmm. You have to read all of their letters. You have to know what's going on in the other parts of their lives such that when you read a letter, you start to get a sense of what they're not saying or what they're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And there and I, I, there's not really a way to do it other than to sit with those guys for a really long time and read all their materials and sort of get a sense of their personality such that you can tell... There's, there's a couple of letters towards the end of the summer of 1793, and that's when the neutrality crisis is happening, so the cabinet is desperately trying to keep the United States out of war between Great Britain and France. And the cabinet is meeting up to five times per week, sometimes for several hours a day, hmm. in Philadelphia in August oh with God. no air conditioning, in a fairly small room, five guys, tons of furniture, really, really hot conditions, um, they yeah. already hate each other. No one takes off their coat. No one's really taking off their coat. So, like, it is miserable. It is, we know that summer was really hot and humid yeah. because there was a really bad outbreak of yellow fever that fall. Mm-hmm. So, like, worst possible conditions. They're meeting every day. And Jefferson writes in his notes that Hamilton <laughs> gives a jury speech for three quarters of an hour. <laughs> Um, now, we know from other recoll- recollections that that probably isn't all that much of an exaggeration given Hamilton's wordiness. And you can just sort of envision him pacing around and gesticulating wildly and you can also envision Jefferson's frustration that he's writing this down because mm-hmm. he doesn't always leave that sort of editorial note um, these are his actual notes of the yes, meeting yes actual notes yeah. of the meeting yeah. um, and so having the sense of who they are allows you to have that picture in your mind of what they would have looked like and sort of understand what was going on and what was happening and be able to laugh kind of at both dynamics in a way that if you just read one letter, you wouldn't be able to do. Mm-hmm. And so that's why sometimes writing and doing history takes so long. Because it takes a really long time to get that comfortable mm-hmm. with those people. And you just always have to continuously remind yourself, you know, maybe Hamilton did talk that long, but why was he talking that long? He was talking that long because the French minister was breaking all of the rules right in front of their nose and he was really mad. And so, you know, it's really important to be able to, as much as you can, dig into the motivations and try and figure out the personalities so that you can tell when Jefferson is trying to really convince Washington of something and maybe isn't being all that genuine. Mm-hmm. 
or when when Washington is really annoyed because he doesn't ever really say that explicitly, but you can kind of tell in the word choice. Yeah, and that just takes that takes a long time. It takes a long time. Washington is so icy and dry. his yeah. wit is as drier than the Sahara Desert. Yes, he's and very dry. He's he's he doesn't express a whole lot in his writing, but you can tell when. Um, when his tone is a little bit more severe, yeah. if you can compare it to other letters, which is why having those thousands and thousands of letters is so helpful. Um, it, yeah, it's Peter Henriquez, I think, also points out the way that you can tell Washington's mood by the different salutations. Mm. <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that becomes, I know that for me, that's become like a, a sort of fine sure. art to figure out what the old man is thinking and feeling by the way he signs a letter. Oh yeah, absolutely. Or, you know, like how he makes the request. Yes. So if he says, there's one point he was really annoyed with Jefferson and rather than saying, you know, if basically like, if it fits your schedule, can you please stop by? He says like, come to my office. Um, <laughs> that's and, like, that's like cursing for him. Yeah. It's like getting called to the principal's office. You don't want that to happen. So you can tell he's really mad. Yeah. Um, so this a, that's a fascinating problem of sourcing and re- mm-hmm. reading between the lines and mm-hmm. and seeing. I remember my senior thesis advisor as undergraduate saying, "What don't they say oh, that yeah. you expect them to say?" It's so important. You know, joke, what are your expectations and how do they subvert them? Mm-hmm. And how are you reading between the lines? Mm-hmm. And that you know, some of the best teaching about that I, that I ever had. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that surprised me the most in terms of an absence that I didn't realize until very late is that Washington does not use the word cabinet until he retires. That's one of those things you just wouldn't have seen. And it's not because it wasn't in the political lexicon. How did you, how did, when did that finally click uh, for you? Later than it should have. <laughs> um, because, you know, by 1792, 1793, it's widely used. Mm-hmm. All of the secretaries are using it. James Madison is using it when he's describing things. Um, I think the reason, I think I realized it actually... You know, keyword searches are a great way to start mm-hmm. any sort of research. You can never stop there, but it's a great way to start. And I was doing a search, and I realized that he said right after he retired something about John Adams' cabinet, um, like right after he retired. Mm-hmm. So he obviously knew that that's what it was being called. Um, and then I was like, huh, I wonder, you know, when he described that in his letters. And so I started searching, and I, he does not What does he use it. instead? Does he use it? Um, so he either calls them the secretaries or he calls them the gentlemen of my family because they were oh. the official family. That's what, of course, which the term he always used is general. Yes. So about, about it, but about his, about you his know, generals. very yeah. ju- uh, junior aides, usually not his generals. Yes. Well, the, the, the generals he was really close with or his aides de camp that yeah. sort of were at, um, at headquarters with him. Yes. And so he replicates one of the things, I mean, not to get too much into those parallels because I know we're saving that, yeah. but. One of the things he does replicate spoiler is alert. that <laughs> yeah, spoiler <laughs> alert. He replicates the um, same sort of family structure. Huh, well, that's really interesting. So that's that was, and we'll we'll get to next time um, your what you make of this realization that he didn't use the what what the significance of him not using mm-hmm. the term cabinet. Mm-hmm. Um, another problem of sourcing, just before we move on, is um, how do you avoid getting contaminated by really well-written secondary sources by eminent historians. Mm-hmm. Um, they've written about Hamilton, they've written about Jefferson, and mm-hmm. they, how do you avoid that? I, I found it very difficult, much more difficult than I thought um, to not pick sides, because I think mm-hmm. it's silly, uh, ultimately. Yeah. I mean, every, uh, but, you know, much better historians than either of us have done it. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, uh, 
it can really poison the way that you go when you go to the well. It can poison the well such that you start seeing primary sources in a different way. Yeah. How do you avoid that? Um, that's a great question. I, I came at it a little bit from a lucky perspective in that, for better or for worse, the cabinet was Washington's creation. And so I ended up sort of coming at it from a Washington perspective, which allowed me a little bit to avoid the Hamilton-Jefferson dynamic. Sure. Um, the other way that I think you can try and avoid it is recognizing if you study them not for who they were or why they hated each other, but their impact on the United States mm -hmm. and their influence on the development of institutions and practices and customs, you can appreciate the magnitude, their you know, their lasting, their lasting influence and their importance. Um, and it allows you to appreciate both in very different ways. Well, it, it, but it, let me push a, a little different direction, but related. I, I think Alan Taylor says somewhere that his, he changed his mind about Henry Knox a great deal from his first book to like yes. his fourth book. Yes. I think. Um, and, you know, if you read Jefferson's notes, Knox is a bumbling idiot. And no, well, Jefferson's wrong. He's wrong, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, political philosophers say, well, Edmund Randolph, he's not all that great, you know. But, but these are, these are very, yeah. but when you look at the actual sure. material, you realize these are really competent men. Knox's Indian policy is yet another mm -hmm. overlooked feature, I mean, because it yeah. failed. Yeah. Uh, but not for his, not for his own sure. faults. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think, I think in some ways I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit stubborn, and I like to, when someone tells me, you know, this right. is the way it's always been studied, or this person is this way, right. I kind of you're contrary. dig in my heels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I kind of want to be like, well, you're wrong. Well, this, and so this, I want to know why you're wrong. This is like um, my colleague, Lendl Calder, always says um, the first move, the first question of, uh, and I've said this before on the podcast, is the first question a historian should ask is, are you kidding me? <laughs> uh, only it's like yeah. a little saltier than that. I always thought yeah. it's like, this is basically Bogart removing his cigarette sure. and cocking his head. You yeah. know, this is, I think, the first, that's what a historian yeah. should first do. Well, I think a heavy dose of skepticism is really important. Yeah. Um, and so it turns out sometimes they're right. So like Julian Freeman <clears> has <throat> obviously spoken and written extensively about Hamilton and she has been fascinated him by him for decades, but does a really good job of, you know, articulating where he was crazy. Yeah. And, you know, when he just talked way too much and just needed to shut up right. and, um, you know, annoyed people. She yeah. became, you know, a famous, um, she, she sort of went viral because on the Hamilton documentary, she swore about him yeah. and it kind of went famous. Um, and so, you know, like she's right about a lot of those things. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I think that's your your point about Jefferson always saying that Knox was an idiot. That's a that's an instance just does where what, just does whatever Hamilton tells says. Or yeah, I mean he agrees with Hamilton, but so then it's a matter of like digging into the resources. Yes. Well, the reason that they often agree is because they had the same military background. Yes. In fact, Knox was way more military experience than Hamilton, so of course he was going to be a nationalist, mm -hmm. and of course he was going to be in favor of military power because that was his perspective. Mm -hmm. So I think I think I think heavy dose of skepticism is really important, especially when you're reading some of the secondary scholarship, and you're going to end up taking some pieces. You're going to end up agreeing with them on some things, and you're going to end up disagreeing. Mm -hmm. And that's why you have to try and read copiously because, and from you know as many perspectives as possible, and just you know really keep an open mind and don't be afraid to question. Mm -hmm. um, 
making connections. How did that happen? Did it, was that just serendipitous? When you began to make connections between various primary sources, when you begin to have your aha moments, I mean... Um, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, any of it... I think there's a there's a definition of luck that is like preparation meets opportunity. <laughs> um, and I'm a big believer in that. So to a certain extent, it's, you know, it's lucky you come across the right thing. Um, you always get a lot of good help. So secondary scholarship and speaking to other scholars and librarians and... Um, reference librarians and editors, they can point you in directions of really important things and they can help you see those documents. Um, and then just not being afraid to look in places that you wouldn't necessarily think would be helpful. Like what? Um, so like for example, when I was looking into Jefferson's cabinet a little bit to try and figure out what practices he continued from Washington's, which actually were quite a lot. Um, <laughs> it's what he knew. <laughs> it's what he knew, despite you know his comments about Washington later on in life, but it's what he knew, so he carried on a lot of it. Um, one of his private secretaries kept a diary, oh. and the diary mostly talks about his life in Washington, the secretary's life in Washington, but it also talks about some of the meals that Jefferson had with his secretaries, hmm. and the menu is, is, is where the note really comes up. But had I not looked at that, I wouldn't have been able to see some of those family meal practices that Jefferson continued from Washington's legacy. So you're making a connection between the fact that Washington and Jefferson both enjoyed dining with their cabinet. Well, and used it for a very political purpose. They used it to try and maintain sort of an esprit de corps mm -hmm. and, you know, build good relationships, worked to, you know, more or less degrees, depending on who was participating in the dinner, but it was a very important part of, they were not just business colleagues, they were trying to cultivate these good relationships. That's interesting. I'm not, I mean, now I'm making connections. I'm not sure how much modern presidents do that. I know, I know that goes on, but some presidents seem to be much more resistant to that. Well, it totally depends on the administration. And, yeah. um, I mean, again, spoiler alert, but one of the things that I argue is that Washington's biggest legacy is actually that each president decides for themselves who are going to be their closest advisors and how they're going to interact with them and in what way. Mm -hmm. And um, they can do so really without any other input or without any oversight. And so if the president wants the closest advisors to be members of the cabinet, great. If they don't, not much we can do about it. And so... Um, some presidents we see, you know, are super close with their cabinet members and have meals with them, and some don't. Right. Um, research we've touched on already, um, but I'm curious, beyond the big papers projects, mm -hmm. you mentioned the diary of Jefferson, one of Jefferson's secretaries. Mm -hmm. What else did you have to use that mm -hmm. wasn't digitally available, and how did you find it? I, um, which... That takes, again, a lot of time. It does. It does. Um, so I did research at the Society of Cincinnati, mm -hmm. um, looking at a lot of Washington's, um, not so much his war papers, because, again, those are digitized, but I was trying to figure out if they had council war records or if they had some of, they had some of the military volumes mm -hmm. that Washington read as he was preparing himself to be commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. And I was in particular trying to look at what Council of War practices he brought over from the British and from the Prussians. <clears throat> um, and so I was looking at some of those texts. Um, the internet is a beautiful and wonderful thing sometimes. And so 
you can kind of do Google searches to figure out what people have. And then once you figure out, you know, you put your finger on an institution, you can look at finding aids and that kind of thing. And that doesn't negate the need to actually speak with librarians and archivists because they're wonderful and, and unbelievable fonts of knowledge. Um, and, but then also talking to people that come before you, where, you know, where did you do your research? What was helpful to you? One of the places that I still haven't been that I really should go is the David Library on the American Revolution. They have incredible stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I've done some some research work at the Library Company in Philadelphia. I was looking at some... Incre incredible collections. Yeah, incredible collections. I've done some research at the Massachusetts Historical Society, which is the oldest historical society mm -hmm. in the United States. I was looking at um, some of Timothy Pickering's papers there, <laughs> who was the second Secretary of War and then eventually the Secretary of State. And, and, a man with, and a man, it must be said, with strong opinions. Yes. <laughs> uh, Pickering was actually the hardest for me to try and stay as neutral as possible. Yeah. Um, and the International Center for Jefferson Studies as mm -hmm. well. So, um, oh, and then, of course, Mount Vernon, uh, the George Washington Library at Mount Vernon. I did a, a long research fellowship there, and they were incredible. So um, lots of different places, and, you know, most of mine tend to center on the Eastern Corridor, because yeah. that's where my sources are. But a lot of it is just talking to people who've come before you. I recommend looking, like pick up a book and look at their acknowledgement section. Mm -hmm. You can usually see where people have done research fellowships, where they've done research, what sources have been helpful for them that way. And that's a really good way to learn about different archives and what might be available. Mm -hmm. One, before we wind this up, I was um, I'm curious, how did you decide to start putting this into a doc, into a document? <laughs> uh, it's a really big document. It's a big document. Uh, but how did, what was the uh, step? Uh, where, where did, basically, did you decide to write a narrative? Did you write a narrative? I mean, um, or did, yeah. did you, are you doing a blend of something? And how did you go about taking the raw material, all the stuff that you had had, had noted down? And by the way, what did, what did you use as a note-taking um, program? Um, so I... Just a I do not think I, I, I did not do this. Do, do not do as I did. Do as I say. Uh -huh. um, I used Scrivener a little bit, but not enough or in the right way to actually use it to its full value. Oh, I love Scrivener. I, yeah, I just, I never got, I could never get into it properly. And yeah. so if you're not using it fully and properly, then it's just a waste. It's a, a great program. It's a cheap program. Yes. It's a wonderful creative writing program. Yes. It, it has powerful tools, which... You need to buy a book. Uh, there's a there's a guide to it that mm. you can get, and mm -hmm. and there's some pretty good tutorials that yes. the chap who created it in Cornwall yeah I, um, I, has, has done. And, I could have done a lot better. But, but you have to do all those things in order. To, I, I still I'm still only I'm still it's like I'm driving around a Ferrari with a kinked gas line. <laughs> I mean it's it's a much more powerful than I realize. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another great tool that's new is called Tropy T R O P Y. Oh, that's a good one. And it is a um, document and photograph management tool that is apparently incredible. It is what I'm planning and hoping to do for my second book. Um, and then I ended up using this really weird combination of PDFs and saved files. And then I also printed out, which was very unenvironmentally friendly of me, but I just really needed it. Every one of the documents or notes that was about a cabinet meeting, I put into a binder. That's really, that's old school. Oh, it's old school. But I just, I couldn't get around it any other way. I needed to be able to flip back yeah, and forth to dates. I, I needed I to be able to look at it by year. 
So, it, okay, again, not not the best way. And then when I started writing, I just did it in, I, I always start with outlines and I always start with handwritten outlines of a chapter. Um, and then I transfer that to a Word document and I start plugging things in. So you weren't writing in Scrivener? I was not writing, well, I like half sort, no, it was yeah, that's a right. this is I, not, I wrote This in, is not a commercial, I'm not a, rep, a Scrivener <laughs> rep, um, although, although this podcast is willing to advertise me. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so you didn't use Zotero or anything like that? I didn't. Again, Zotero is something that I'm hoping to incorporate for my second book. I did it very old school and very weird. I think really the problem was that I started trying to incorporate these things too late. Yeah. And by then it just, I had too many other things going on. No, I I understand. And there's parts of me sometimes that say, to hell with all this, let me use the three by five cards because yeah. there's something to that, to just laying things out. I don't want to really good books written with three by five I know, cards. and I actually wrote, I, I used, I hand wrote a lot of, mm-hmm. I, I, I use a fountain pen a, a lot just yeah. because I find it's better, I can write, it slows me down. Yeah. I mean, I'm writing really fast by mm-hmm. hand, but it slows my brain down sure. so that I'm not just putting junk onto the yeah. screen. Yeah. But. Yeah. Um, so then when I got to to actually doing this, I didn't actually write it. Narr- well, my work was narrative in in style in that I am not. I don't really like intensive theory. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's very important to study the historiography, the scholarship that has come before us. But I think that it serves a purpose and it should not be the primary scaffolding of a book. Um, and so. That was sort of, those were sort of the two, you know, functional things about my writing. And then I approached the dissertation thematically. So I had a chapter on the British origin, I had a chapter on the military origin, and I had a chapter on the state's origin. Um, Then when it came time to, so for full reference, I have done, since that point, I have done two full rewrites, like pulling apart sentence by sentence. (laughs) <laughs> um, I wish I could I, unfortunately in a podcast you can't see the expression on her face but it, it, was, it was it was sad and also full of pain <laughs> yeah it was, it was not it was not fun but it was absolutely the right thing to do so yeah. when I was first pulling all these this thematic stuff together I had received um, a lot of very good advice that I well I personally really wanted to tell the narrative story of the start of the cabinet so I wanted it to be the story I didn't want it to be thematic because I wanted it to be accessible and readable. It's very important to me to tell the story well because it is the first time that's really being told. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel a lot of sort of loyalty and um, duty to the subject. And I had received a lot of very good advice that flashback chapters don't serve the reader well because it confuses them. And what's a flashback chapter just to? So, for example, if I'm telling the story of the cabinet, pausing in 1793 and having a flashback chapter about the revolution to explain why the councils of war were so important. Mm -hmm. So that wouldn't really serve the reader well. So what I was encouraged to do was to take those snippets and basically plug them into the book, which I did. um, And I had a manuscript workshop and it was a very valuable experience because I was basically told uh, that doesn't work. What's a manuscript workshop? So a manuscript workshop is an incredible opportunity um, some history departments offer it to their new faculty. I had it through my postdoctoral fellowship at the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University, where basically they invite two senior scholars to come to campus and maybe some other more junior scholars or local scholars to read your book ahead of time 
and then you sit down for a couple of hours and talk about it. And it's rare that you're going to have that kind of collected intellect focus on your book for that long. Mm -hmm. So it's a real gift. Um, and they basically said, no, that really doesn't work. And the reason they said no is because I was basically jumping back and forth between the 1790s and the 1770s constantly. Yeah. Um, and so then I took it again and I ripped it apart sentence by sentence and I um, did it 100% completely chronologically. And the reason I didn't do that initially was because I was concerned that the cabinet doesn't actually come up until about halfway through the book. Mm -hmm. But I think that um, it's a way better story this way. Mm -hmm. I think that it reads way better. I think that people understand the sort of very organic development of the early American state. Mm -hmm. And the cabinet is a great um, way to study state building because it happened so organically, so naturally, so in response to reactive or reactive to international and domestic pressures. And that's really the story of early America. And so I think that it was really painful and um, I wish I hadn't had to write it again basically two times, but is much better off for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was going to ask you at this point uh, what you wished you had done differently, um, but you've kind of, you, you kind of said it. Um, and I, I mean that mm -hmm. in the sense that when people ask me about it's amazing how I lead with the regrets. Yeah. Um, and uh, you've just... It, but at the same time, it probably wouldn't be a good book if you hadn't had to break it apart the way that you did. Yeah. It probably, I, it's ridiculous to expect that you could do that the, fir the mm -hmm. first time. Well, I think that... Um, I guess my biggest regret is that had I just gone straight to the flashback chapter option, I think that the readers still would have said, flashback chapters don't work, but just move them to the front. Mm -hmm. And so I would have maybe only had to tear it apart once. Okay. Um, and you... so in that in that way, I do wish that I had gone a little bit more with my gut. Mm -hmm. um, you know your subject best, and you know your work best. And so while I believe that editing and being able to take constructive criticism is crucial and so important, mm -hmm. um, you have to live with the end result. And so I think that that was a really good learning lesson for me. Um, but I never have once regretted the topic. I've never once regretted writing it. I've never once regretted doing a degree. Um, mm -hmm. And so I'm very, I very, and I still love, I mean, sometimes the word cabinet, I get really annoyed and I start calling it cabinet when I'm like typing <laughs> to myself just because if I say cabinet one more time, I'm going to lose it. But I still love the topic and I still love the story. So, if it's not too much of uh, in advance, what are you thinking about doing for your next book? Because so, to yeah. give you the to give you the question that you are soon by this time next year, you're mm -hmm. going to hate. <laughs> um, well, next year I'm hoping that I have a little bit more progress on it, so it will feel more like an in work than a to be done. Um, I'm going to continue the cabinet story. Mm -hmm. I am going to write a comparison of John Adams and Thomas Jefferson's cabinets. They had, for those of you who don't know, they had very different cabinet experiences. Um, Thomas Jefferson has had the least cabinet turnover of any president in American history. Yeah. And John Adams' cabinet was practically treasonous. And so... Um, and that's not... A, and and they, I'm not exaggerating. And not exaggerating. And they certainly... <laughs> that treasonous to the United States and certainly to him. Certainly to him. When, I mean, at least at the, at the bare minimum disloyal. Yes. 
Um, but there, I love I love the way that looking at a cabinet allows us to have a really unique window into their presidency, their leadership, their personality, their relationships, how they managed their relationships and their emotions. It's just such a unique way of looking at these presidencies. And again, hasn't really, for all of the literature on them and for all the literature on their presidencies, the cabinet really remains understudied mm -hmm. and um, I guess I kind of just decided that I'm going to be the cabinet person. That's right. Decided to be the cabinet. I'm the person. cabinet person. <laughs> exactly. Um, it, it's in some ways uh, we could even say Washington as president has been understudied. Mm -hmm. um, it, which is kind of which is striking and odd. Well, when people study Washington's president, they usually study Hamilton and Jefferson. Jefferson, exactly. And um, you know we were saying this earlier, but his uh, emotional intelligence and his political savvy is so underappreciated because the greatest things he did were know when not to say anything, to know when not to do something, um, and really that restraint. And um, that's really hard to manage, or to manage, but also to measure. You know, it's a lot easier to measure winning a civil war or winning a world war. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think his contributions are not always recognized for how, for how many precedents he actually set and their enormous impact that they have on the institution. Um, so the book is coming out when again? March 2020. March 2020 from Belknap Press of Harvard yeah. University Press. Yes. Um, I think that's what the, that what that's what Belknap of something like that. Yeah, um, yeah close enough. <laughs> and um, you'll be on your international book tour then in March, mm -hmm. April. Yes. Um, all of spring, really. All of spring, yeah. And um, where else can people find out about you and your work? The White House Historical Association website? Yes. So I would say first is my website. It's lindsaychervinsky.com. And my last name is C-H-E-R, because most people type in T or S. Um, and so Binsky. Is that with a S-K-I or S-K-Y? Excellent. So C-H-E-R-V-I-N-S-K-Y. Mm -hmm. um, so that's my website. Um, if you go onto my website, you can see some of my work and um, some of media stuff. But you can also sign up for, I do a monthly newsletter, although I think the word newsletter is kind of outdated and stuffy. So I call it a spot of parchment because that's more historically appropriate. And I share fun historical stories and interesting photographs and links to things you may have missed, some writing tips. Um, and I only send it out once a month because I know no one wants spam. Um, and then I'm also on Twitter. I love Twitter. So you can follow me at LM Chervinsky on Twitter. Lindsay, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.